just thrilled to see me? I got a better response out of 8.30. <laughs> they were really glad to see me. <laughs> I'm glad to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Checks in the mail. But uh, just, just good to be together in the family of God. And um, these are the folks that God has chosen to be, bring together. And uh, you're my church family. I appreciate you. Thank you. Uh, I realized that um, uh, in a sort of a different way this past week. I ran across an old church directory from 1979, all right? In the last century, 1979, as you know, I, I started uh, preaching here in 1982. So it was a few years before I came. But uh, I, I went through the list. A few of the names I didn't recognize, a lot of them I did. Most of them were not here. Um, some have moved out of the area. Some have uh, moved on to glory. But uh, it was interesting to go through a list of names and, and to see some who had been deacons and uh, had fought a battle or two on my behalf, um, to see some who had been Sunday school teachers for my children, uh, to see others who had been very faithful and reliable in just getting ordinary things done that have to get done that nobody else wants to do, but these were the people who did it. And just to go down and to see one name after another name after another name and just to, to recall how God had used that person in the life of our church. It was a great exercise. It was more than just a walk down memory lane. It was a realization how God uses us together. And I think that's something what's going on with Paul in Romans chapter 16. That, by the way, is where we're going to be uh, this morning. Romans chapter 16. Uh, we've looked at it the last couple of weeks. Uh, this, this morning we'll, we'll try to get towards the end of it. But Paul here lists greetings, say hi, to uh, over two dozen uh, different people. And as he mentions each one, he, uh, uh, quite often he'll mention something else about them that, that uh, sticks in his mind about them. This, this was a fellow worker. This, this person is beloved. This person was in jail with me, you know, that kind of thing. And, and so he's writing to them. Now, understand Paul's writing probably from Corinth. He's writing to Rome. These are Christian believers who were in Rome, but Paul has encountered them somewhere along the line. He's encountered them It may be out on a missionary journey, maybe in an extended ministry in a, in a city, an establishment of a church, and now the folks that he knew have moved on and they've gone into Rome. And so he's saying, just tell those people hi for me. So in, in a sense, we're seeing a church directory. It's, it's not the whole directory. It's not every Christian that's in Rome, but it's some of those that stick in his mind and that he recalls in a particular way. Now, you've got to ask yourself, now, why is that there? I mean, why is that, that there? Why did the Holy Spirit in, inspire Paul to take up a part of the inspired Word of God with, say hey to my friends? As I thought about that, it seems to me that Paul has come to the end of the book of Romans. As you know, the most beautiful, sustained, exposition of the gospel in the New Testament. Just a sustained presentation, uh, technical term, a sustained argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ, starting out with, with the wrath of God and the revelation of the fact that we're all sinners. And just about the, the time you're, 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 you're struggling on the weight of the fact that there's none righteous, no, not one. Then he says, but now the righteousness of God is revealed in Christ Jesus 
The law talks about it and the prophets talks about him, but, but now that righteousness is revealed in Jesus Christ and he goes on to show how, how this is the promise of God all along by faith, starting with Abraham. And now the love of God has been manifest to us because Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so sin is impossible because now we're living a new life in Christ. As we saw a moment ago, we've been buried with Jesus in baptism. And we've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Paul says we, we, we keep struggling with sin and, and it keeps coming back. The good that I would, I do not. And that which I would not, that very thing I do. Wretched man that I am. But thanks be to God. And in spite of my wretchedness, he sent Jesus Christ to die for me. So now chapter, we're up to chapter 8. So now we live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk in the great majesty of God's sovereignty over us. That great sovereignty that has predestined us to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. And now you know why you're here. Now you know what God's will is for you. To be conformed to the image of Christ. And it's not as though this is a secondary thought on God because from the very beginning, go back to the Old Testament, see what God was doing among the Jews, and you'll see it was never race. It was always grace, chapters 9 through 11. Therefore, on the basis of this marvelous gospel, I beg you, live a life worthy of Christ. Present your body a living sacrifice. Be a walking, breathing worship service to God in all that you say and do. And let it manifest itself in very real, very concrete ways. And that's what we looked at in chapters uh, 12 through 15. So Paul has written about this marvelous gospel. And and it's it's, it's a book that has sung through the ages in the hearts of God's people, converting the wayward, bringing back the lost, inspiring the believer. And now at the end of this book, he says, say hey to my friends. And here's why I think he does that. He wants us to know this isn't theory. This isn't just theological thought processes going on in the, in the ethosphere or something. It, it, it's not just um, sort of a, a systematic theology, a theological way to contemplate the, the, the mystery of God. No, this is, this is very personal with Paul. And he says, as I've written this gospel, as I've told you about this gospel of salvation, of which I'm not ashamed, he says, as I've written about it, I've had you in mind. I've had people like Aquila and people like Priscilla, and we'll read 20-some more names. He says, I've had these kinds of people in mind because their lives were changed by this gospel. And Beloved, your name can be changed by the gospel too because if this is sort of a church directory, Your name could be found here. Your name by faithfulness to Christ, faith in Jesus Christ. Your name by by service and work and ministry in the body of Christ. Your name, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, can be included in God's directory of believers in Jesus Christ. So we have just a few names here, but it sort of represents them all. And look, as I'm reading these names, most of them will not be familiar to you. I'm going to let you know, most of them are not familiar to me. I had to practice how to pronounce them. I still don't know how to pronounce two or three of them, but I'm going to fake it. And you won't know the difference. But as we're reading through here, it's sort of like reading through somebody's church directory. But hear the heart of Paul as he says, and I remember this person. 
I remember what they did. Say hi to them for me because this gospel transformed their life and mine. Let's read together Romans chapter 16, and uh, it'll be verses 3 through 16. And so greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Adronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss, and all the churches of Christ greet you. Let's bow together in prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, told us to bring the little children to him and to never be a hindrance, never be a cause of stumbling to our little ones. Father, as dear and as precious as our children are to us, more dear, more precious they are to you. As much as we crave their well-being, their health, and their safety, you crave their well-being, health, and safety more than we do. Father, as much as we want to see them come to Christ, you all the more. And so, Father, I pray that you would align our hearts for our children with your heart for our children, that we would see in them ones for whom you have sent the Savior to die, who, though sinful, yet Christ died for them because of your great love. Father, help us to be the witnesses and the testimonies. Let us be the ones in whom Christ has seen that little eyes and young hearts would see Jesus in us and would be drawn to the Savior to love him as we love him, to serve him as we serve him, to follow him as we follow him. Father, in this place, let little eyes and young hearts see the Savior in us so, they, so that they would fall in love with Jesus to walk in his footsteps their whole lives long. Father, into your hands we commend our little ones. And this we do in Jesus' name. Amen. If I uh, may take a little fatherly privilege, I just heard one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard. It doesn't matter what the world thinks of you. It only matters what God thinks of you. And I find, it, you know, even as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know better, but we slip into thinking that the world's opinion of us is what matters. 
that somehow they have a real insight into who we are and what life is about and what they say about us and where we fit in. That's, that's where we are. And the world will say things like, this is an important person and this is a little person. And what we know that in God's kingdom there are no little people. There's just a great Savior and a great fellowship of believers in Jesus Christ. See, history worships the big people, you know, people like kings and generals. And you, you really don't get a lot from the ordinary guy in the trenches. Um, and, and there's some reason for that. I mean, back in ancient history, it was only the kings and the generals who had enough money to hire people to write down their names or to build a building that had their name inscribed on it. And so um, uh, you really don't get a lot about the common everyday person out of history. And there's sort of a, a reason for that. But by and large, when we study history, we think the most important people are the people with a big name who've done a lot. And the little people, they're just sort of like background noise. One of the great things about the gospel is that nobody's background noise. We are all singing to the praises of Jesus Christ. And so uh, in, in this sermon to follow, in our conversation in the Word uh, for the next few minutes, you might hear me use the phrase, a little person. Understand, I'm using that in quotes. I'm not going to do the air quote thing every time, but, but the world says there are little people. And what I want you to know is that God does great things in little people. We find that in the directory in Romans chapter 16, person after person after person. And Paul talks about them when we, we don't recognize the name the way we might recognize some other names out of biblical history. We, we recognize a King David. We recognize a Moses. We recognize Elijah, Elisha, the prophets, and, and you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and so forth. And we recognize those names. But God did some awfully big things in peoples whose names are, are forgotten to us until we get to heaven. We don't remember the name of the little servant girl, the Hebrew servant girl who told Naaman that there was a prophet through whom God could cure his leprosy. We don't remember the name of the widow who took Elijah in nor the Shunammite woman who took Elijah in. We don't know the name of the little boy who brought his lunch to Jesus and said, here, are you hungry? <laughs> And Jesus said, I know some folks who are, and he fed them miraculously. We don't know that little boy's name, not yet. We don't even know the name of the woman at the well of Samaria who engaged Jesus in one of the great theological conversations of the gospel and came to the conclusion, this is the Messiah, and went and told her village, and they came out, and they believed when they saw Jesus too. We don't know her name yet. Now, we know a lot of names in Romans chapter 16. We, we have a whole series of names here, and we know the names. It's, it's the deeds. It's what they did that we don't know so much. But just to represent how, how that works, I want for us to take just one name and look at that and, and to see how God does big things through little people by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. It's found in verse 13, Romans 16, 13. Paul says, Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. Paul says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Well, there's a real sense in which all believers in Jesus Christ are chosen by God. You remember that back in Romans chapter 8 
where Paul says, look, those whom God foreknew, that is those whom God had purposed in his heart and in his sovereign will, those whom God um, knew to be his and decided as his, those whom God foreknew, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his dear son. So before the foundation of the world, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God already had a plan for your life. Your destiny is to look exactly like Jesus. We've seen that working out in the book of Romans. So those whom he foreknew, God predestined to be like Jesus. And those whom he predestined, then he called them. And having called them, then he justified them. And having justified them, he glorified them. And so we are chosen. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are chosen by God. And the mystery of it is that you chose him. Not because you were smart, not because you were brilliant, not because you had greater insight than your neighbor, but because God's Holy Spirit planted it within your heart to choose Jesus Christ. You know, we don't know the testimony of Rufus. We don't know how he became a Christian. We don't know his testimony the way we know the testimony of Paul, for example, on the road to Damascus, armed with his religious and theological education, going to impress God with how zealous he was by persecuting the church. And Jesus stopped him on the road, blinded him to the things he thought were important, turned his life around and led him back into the city. And there Paul had the scales from his eyes removed when he realized Jesus Christ is Lord. We don't know the testimony of Rufus the way we know the testimony of Lydia, for example. Lydia, the businesswoman, the dealer in purple, who went to a lady's Bible study down by the riverside. And when she got there, they were studying the gospel. They didn't plan on it, but there was Paul, and he was teaching it. And so in this lady's Bible study, she hears about Jesus and she decides, this is the Messiah, this is my Lord. She says to Paul and his companions, you come home with, my, with me and I tell you what, why don't we start a church in my house? And so that's what they did. We don't know the testimony of Rufus the way we know the testimony of the Philippian jailer who went on the night shift one evening and he went over to the jail to keep watch, and then this earthquake comes, and all the doors are open, the chains fall off everybody's arms, and, and this jailer realizes, I'm in a whole heap of trouble here. And the very lowest point in his life, because he realizes these prisoners having escaped, that, that will fall on me, and I'll have to pay the penalty of every one of them. And Paul cries out of the darkness of the dungeon. He says, put your sword away. Look, we're all here. And the guy puts two and two together under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and he says, you know, I think I need to be saved. What do I got to do? And Paul led him to Christ in his whole household. We don't know the testimony of Rufus the way we do of the Ethiopian court official who was on his way home. He'd had a road trip. He'd, 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 he'd gone to Jerusalem and there to worship. He's on his way home, and Philip comes up and says, hey, look, you, you want me to explain what you're, what you're seeing on, 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 and you're reading there in the book of Isaiah? The official says, yeah, I have no idea what it means. And so Philip explains it to him and shows him Christ in the prophets. And the official becomes a Christian and says, look, I, I need to be baptized. Look, there's water right here. Let's go down into the water and get baptized. We don't know the, the testimony of a person like Rufus, but we know he has one because he was chosen in the Lord. Our testimonies are precious to us. 
I know when I was growing up, uh, the church where I grew up, First Baptist Church of San Diego, California, we, they, they used to bring in people to give their testimonies because they had a, what we called back then, a marvelous testimony. You, know, you would bring somebody in who had a real story to tell, and, and I can remember as a child listening, and it wasn't every Sunday, but it was often enough that I remember this, this parade of people who would come, and they would tell us about how their lives had gone wrong and how they had gotten into alcohol or into drugs and how they had wound up in the gutter, and there from the depths of the gutter they cried out and God had lifted them up. And by the way, praise God that he lifts people up out of the gutter. But as a five, six-year-old boy, I'm listening to that, being very precocious, by the way, and, and listening to that, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I need to go out and really do something really, really bad so God has something worth, worth saving because I've never done these things. I don't have a marvelous testimony. <clears throat> and over the years, then I came to understand the marvelous testimony I have, that God put me in a Christian home. I didn't choose that. God gave me a Christian mother and father. I didn't choose that. God gave me a mother and a father who pointed me to Christ every day and who made Jesus just the natural atmosphere that you inhale in our home. I didn't choose that. I have a marvelous testimony, and it goes like this. God chose me, and he spared me the gutter. I came to understand that, yes, I'm a sinner, and yes, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the God, uh, glory of God, and that having fallen short, the, the wages of all sin is death, and that, that I was liable for that death, but the gift of God for me was, was salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ. I came to understand that, and my marvelous testimony, precious to me, is that Jesus saved me in a way that I would never have chosen, and that, it, and that as I look back at it now, I will tell you this, Jesus did it all. He paid it all, and he did it all, and it was God's choice. Oh, our testimonies are precious to us. I pray that you have a testimony of how Jesus has worked in your life, how Jesus has brought you from darkness to light, from death into life. I pray that you have a testimony. We know that Rufus had a testimony because Paul said, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Because God did a great thing in a little life. God did the great work of salvation in the life of a little person as history counts him. And that great work that God has done is the greatest work of all. He saved his soul. But you read on in that verse, and Paul says, I want you to greet Rufus. And when you do, also his mother, and the ESV translation says, who has been a mother to me as well. In the Greek, it's just greet mother, his and mine. Now, some scholars have even suggested, well, Rufus and Paul must have been brothers. They have the same mother. I think it's, it, it's pr fairly apparent. Paul is speaking figuratively here. He's saying whatever nurture and care that this woman gave to Rufus as his mother... She gave it to me. I wish we knew what that was. I wish we knew what that nurturing was. Was it to be a supporter of the work the way Phoebe had been, a patron of the gospel? Was it to be a co-worker in the trenches together teaching Christ the way Priscilla had been? Was it to be one who opened up her home so that a church might be started the way Lydia had been? We don't know what it was, but what we do know is that when Paul thought of the mother of Rufus, he thought of some great work that God had done on his behalf in the life of this woman. God does amazing things through the women of our church. 
and amazing things through the mothers of our children. And I was looking this up uh, because I have some interest in it still, uh, but I was looking up a survey on what happens to preachers' kids. All right, there. I'll tell you, if you went through our church directory, I think you would find that we have more preachers' kids in this church than anything else. I would ask you to raise hands, but everybody else would be embarrassed. And besides, we don't want to show them the secret handshake. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. But there was a a survey done, a a poll, whatever, by the Barna Group. It might have been by Lifeway. But but what it it said was that among the families of pastors and preachers, about 40% of their children will have a crisis of faith at some point before they leave the home. Among pastors, about 40% of their children have a crisis of faith. By the way, among people who are not pastors in their homes, about 40% of children have a crisis of faith. So you're not any better than we are, okay? That, that whole thing about preacher's kids are the worst kids, that's not true. They're all just kids. They're all just the same. Now, I'm, I'm, all right, I'm off topic here, but you'll let me. I just thank God that this was a church that let my boys be boys and let my kids be kids and let them do foolish things and wise things and good things and not tell me about the bad things. I, I, you know, I'll tell you what else I, I, I love about this church. This is a church in which my boy saw Jesus in the men of this church and in the women of this church. Amen. And as I thought about Paul saying she was a mother to me as well, I thought about the number of women in this church have been a mother also to my children. I thank God for that. But the, the, the statistics are, you know, about, about what, what is that, two in ten, one in five will struggle with their faith. About one in three children will actually stay in the faith. They will remain as Christians, but they just won't go to church anymore. And I get that because a lot of times a preacher's kid sees a lot of knife throwing and backstabbing. And, and, and uh, you know, they, they, a lot of times preacher's kids will see the, the raw part of church life that that a child shouldn't have to look at. I thank God in this church, my boys saw the great beauty of the body of Christ, and thank you so much. But about a third will not go to church. They'll believe in Jesus, they just won't go to church. By the way, about one in 14, 7%, will desert the faith and just leave Christ out. What a heartbreak. So Paul said, she was a mother to me as well. We don't raise statistics, we raise our children. And we don't plead that God would perform a statistical miracle in our families. We pray that God's Holy Spirit would hold our children in the hollow of his hand and that the Holy Spirit would keep them safe and guide their footsteps and prepare the way and that when when, uh, trauma comes and when, when, when heartache comes their way, the Holy Spirit would just guard their hearts from all harm and scar and... We pray for our children. We don't pray for statistics. But this woman, whom Paul said was like a mother to me, evidently she had been able to communicate that faith to Rufus as well. Sort of reminds you of of Timothy. I'll just read it for you real quickly. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, Paul writing to this young preacher, he says, Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Then he says this, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you. What a beautiful thing to see the faith 
passed from generation to generation. Now, understand your children are responsible for their own faith. You know, our kids have to make their own decision for Christ. We can't do that for them. We can't, um, you know, force it upon them. It's something that our children have to do. But, I'm, you, know, it, you know the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, you can't make him drink? But you can sure feed him salt along the way. And to make our children hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's something we can do. God did a great work in this unknown, this little person who is the mother of Rufus because she was an avenue whereby the gospel came to her, her family, to her son, and whereby the gospel ministry was encouraged in the life of Paul. But there's one other person in the life of Rufus that I want to mention, and this is going to require a little bit of detective work, and uh, so um, uh, just bear with me and, and keep with me on this. I want you to turn with me to Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 21. Uh, this, in Mark 15, this is where Jesus is walking to Calvary. He's on his way to be crucified. He's had the mockery of the trial. He's been scourged and whipped and beaten. His body is bleeding. He's gone without sleep. He is tired. He is exhausted physically. And one of the things the Romans did when they crucified a man was they put his own cross on his shoulders, and he had to carry that cross all the way. And as Jesus is carrying the cross, evidently just as they're coming outside the city, because it'll say in a moment that Simon's coming in from the field, but just as they get to the gate, evidently it's, it's getting to be too much physically. And so the Romans do this. It says this in verse 21, Mark chapter 15, they compelled a passerby. They compel the passerby. By the way, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if someone compels you, same word, compels you to go a mile, go with them too. This is what it's talking about. The Roman soldiers were allowed to say, hey, I want you to carry my backpack for a mile. And Jesus said, once you've gone through the, the humiliation of it, and once you've gone through the unfairness of it, and once you've gone through the fact that this is a power grab on his part, once you've gone through the fact that, that it's dehumanizing, after you've carried a mile with all this going on in your head, then I want you to carry that pack another mile and just confuse the stew out of that Roman soldier. <laughs> and so these soldiers, they said to Simon, they compelled him, this passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. Cyrene, by the way, is a city in northern Africa. It was a city that had a very large Jewish population. And so, evidently, Simon had traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And now maybe he'd been staying at a little hotel out in the suburbs. And now he's, he's walking his way back in for the day's activities. And as he's coming in, these Roman soldiers say, Hey, you, you're dressed a little funny. You look a little funny. Wouldn't it be great fun? Why don't you carry his cross? Here, you get this guy's cross. And that's what happened. And so it says, Simon of Cyrene coming in from the country, but it says this about him. The father of Alexander and Rufus. The father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, obviously, this might not be the same Rufus, but here's why we think it is. Paul writes from Corinth to the Romans and says, say hi to Rufus. The Gospel of Mark, as far as we can tell, was written in Rome. Evidently, Mark used the reminiscences of, of uh, Peter and set down the Gospel, and, and, and so that's sort of the, the, the chain and the link of evidence there. But it's written from Rome. Now, in Luke's Gospel and in Matthew's Gospel, they mention Simon of Cyrene, but they do not mention Rufus. Because Matthew was written in Syria, 
and Luke is written sort of on the road as he's doing his research. First in Jerusalem, I think Luke probably talked to, to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and got the whole Christmas story from her and, and then gathered this other information and put it together. But neither Matthew nor Luke uh, mentioned Rufus, but Mark does. Why? Because the first readers of Mark's gospel probably lived in Rome. And when they saw that name Rufus, they said, that's his daddy. I didn't know that. A lot is falling into place now. The father of Rufus is the one who carried the cross of Jesus. And so on that day, Simon of Cyrene, thinking that he was going in for an, just a little time of celebration, was singled out, history says, by the Romans, we suspect by the hand of God, to bear the burden for Christ. Luke's gospel says that he took the cross and he followed Jesus. That's what it says. And so when Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself, take up a cross daily, and follow me. This is Simon of Cyrene. He didn't choose it. He's not some theological giant. It's not like he was so pious that he says, choose me, choose me. But God picked him out and used him at that moment in the chain leading to the cross. Could have chosen anybody else, but he chose Simon of Cyrene. Now, we don't know if Rufus was there. We don't know if Rufus saw this humiliation inflicted upon his father. We don't know what Rufus saw. I can tell you that a little boy looks up to his dad, that a little boy reveres his dad, that a little boy idolizes his dad. And when he sees his dad kicked around and when he sees his father stabbed in the back, when he sees his father mistreated, when he sees his father dragged through the dust, when he sees his father mistreated by the world, it does something to a little boy's heart. But I'm going to tell you this, man, listen to this. But when they see their dad respond with integrity and honesty and dignity and love and compassion, it does something to the heart of a little boy. We don't know if Rufus saw what happened. We don't know if he just learned about it later. We don't know if Rufus saw the day when Simon learned, you don't know when God is going to use you. Simon thought this was a day like any other day. He thought, well, you know, it's on the itinerary. We're going to Jerusalem. Oh, today is Passover day. This, this will be great. You know, all those kinds of things. We don't know what, what his itinerary was, but it didn't include this. But Simon, a little man in history, God did a great thing. You don't know what day it is that God will choose you to do something great that the world will never notice but will be written down in heaven. Oh, I suspect that up in heaven they might be sitting around and they're just reminiscing about the great things God has done. And Moses might be saying, you know, God blessed me. He blessed me to be the one to lead Israel out of Egypt and blessed me to be the one through whom the Ten Commandments were given. David might say, God blessed me. He allowed me to rule over Israel at the height of her power. And he used my throne as a picture of what the throne of the Messiah would look like. Peter might say, oh, God blessed me. He allowed me to be the one to preach the gospel on the maiden sermon of the church on Pentecost. Sunday. And on and on it goes of those who had done great things. And then all of heaven goes quiet, as Simon of Cyrene says, I carried his cross. And everyone says, I wish I'd done that. 
I wish I had done that. You see, you don't know what day God will use to do something big in your life. We don't know if Rufus was there the day that his father, Simon, learned the lesson that there is no task too small in the kingdom of God. I mean, this is very low-level stuff. Carrying a cross doesn't require a theological degree. It doesn't require any eloquence. It doesn't require any special abilities. You don't have to be, have training. You don't be a, have to be a certified person in order to be humiliated this way and carry a cross. It's such a small thing, but it's such a great thing in the kingdom of God. God may have used somebody else, but he used Simon in this small way that Jesus would go to the cross and die for us. You don't know what task God is using. You might look at it and say, this is so insignificant. Nobody's ever going to notice. Nobody will ever be able to tell. But in the kingdom of God, in the great vastness of eternity, it might be the crucial linchpin that brings somebody into the kingdom of God. You don't know. We don't know if Rufus was there the day his dad, Simon, learned the lesson that you'll never understand the impact you have on others by your obedience. You don't know who's watching. You don't know where they are when they watch. You don't know what's going through their head. We just let the Holy Spirit figure that out. But what you've got to understand is that God has put people into your life and you may look at them and say, oh, these are great people, successful people. These are, these are folks who, have, who have, have everything and they've achieved everything. And look, look where I am. I'm, 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 I haven't gotten ahead. I haven't accomplished anything. Nobody's ever going to ask me to be on a conference to, to explain how to get through life. And, and my life is it's just going to be awful. But you don't know who's going to be touched. You don't know what little eyes are watching you. You don't know when your child is learning a lesson about God from something that's going on in your life. So Rufus is a little person. I, I use the quotes there again, you know. But by the world standard, Rufus is a little person. But he's a little person in whom God did great things. His mother, a little person in whom God did great things. His dad, Simon, a little person in whom God did great things. And I don't know where you are this morning. I don't, I, maybe, maybe your feeling about yourself is, well, I'm one of the great people. You know, I'm one of the successful people. I'm one of the great achievers in all of history. Give me your address. I'll let you know when the sermon is on tithing. <laughs> maybe that's where you are. Okay, great. But maybe you're feeling sort of like a little person this morning. You're feeling as though not everything's worked out and you're just sort of hanging on. You're just trying to get through. You'd be happy just to survive for another day. Maybe you feel like a little person. But let me tell you, God does great things in little people. And so don't ever look at a day and consider it so normal and ordinary that God can't use it. Never consider any day of your life as being so routine that God can't accomplish some great thing for his glory. Never consider any task so small 
that it's insignificant in the work of the kingdom. For God takes little tiny efforts and weaves them together in the tapestry of his grace to magnify the beauty of his glory in us. And never look at another person and think of them as so lowly that they're not worth your time and attention. That's where you will oftentimes find the very heart of God drawing you closer to him. And so maybe you feel like a little person. God does great things in little people. And then you get your name in the directory. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you so much. You could accomplish all this without us. You could proclaim the gospel. You could write it in the heavens on the clouds. You could, you could engrave it in the mountainsides, Father. And yet you choose us. Father, your love is so wonderful and deep and profound, and yet you use us with our halting, misunderstanding, stumbling efforts to share your love. It amazes us, Father, but how thankful we are for the gift of your Holy Spirit that accomplishes your purposes. Father, I ask for the folks in this room, outpouring your Holy Spirit, do great things, open our eyes, give us the chance to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory as you do great things in our lives. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You came to the world you created Trading your crown for a cross You willingly died Your innocent life paid the cost And counting your status as nothing The King of all kings came to serve